Thank you for joining the special edition of Harper Audio Presents, where we are excerpting the new novel from Ryan Gaddis, who has been compared to Richard Price, George Pelicanos, and Dennis Lehane. The novel, All Involved, publishing from Echo Press on April 7th, 2015, takes place over six days in 1992 with the LA riots as backdrop. Today's excerpt is from day six, Monday. The novel contains profane language and some violence and is not intended for children. If you have children listening, you'll want to turn the podcast off now. We'll serialize a children's book later in the year and this is not for them. Ryan, tell us about Mikey and how he relates to Ernesto. Well, Mikey is a stranger in a strange land, I think. He's expected to look and act a certain way simply based on uh, his cultural heritage, but he rejects that notion. He's deeply into oi music and British culture to the point of dressing the part, riding a chop-down scooter. Yet he lives at home with his mom and dad. He's going to school. He's making something of himself, but what he wants more than anything is to be a writer. What he doesn't know is that his dad used to be involved, but isn't anymore and he was spared that life as a result. Mikey's never actually met Ernesto, but he's there at a crucial point to appreciate a memorial of sorts. As the city calms and the curfew is lifted, this section begins with an all-too-common confrontation between Mikey and his dad, Miguel Sr. He figures his dad wants something because he made enough breakfast for the both of them, and he's not wrong. But in order for him to give in to his father's wishes, He's going to need something in return. And here is narrator Anthony Ray Perez reading from Day 6 from All Involved. 1. When my alarm goes off, I wake up with the beat of a special song in my head. So I kick my sheets off, go find the tape of it, and put it in the deck. I'm pressing play on a message to you, Rudy, as my dad knocks next to the space where my door would be if I had one. We're redoing the house. Actually... He's redoing the house. Again. Where my wall used to be is a wooden skeleton of support studs that I stuff with books because it looked like an empty bookcase sitting there on its own, but also because it makes it more private, at least, a little. Still, I can see him looking at me past the spines of my Richard Allen pulp novels. My dad is a contractor. He got his degree in drafting from Santa Monica City College, but he doesn't do much with it. Mostly he sells tile and does installations, bathrooms, kitchens, that kind of thing. His claim to fame is that he did both bathrooms in Raquel Welch's guest house in Italian marble. There's a framed autographed picture of her on the wall of his store, Tile Planet. It's on Western in this little strip of Palos Verdes that cuts into San Pedro. You can see all of L.A. from up there. You can look down on it. I think that's one of the reasons why my dad likes it. He likes looking down on things, especially people. You don't need to knock, I tell my dad. But I don't press the stop button on my music. The wall's open. He doesn't get the sarcasm. He steps into my room a little and says, You want breakfast or what? I eye him for a moment as the ska bops along between us. My dad hates this music. It gets on his nerves, which obviously makes me love it that much more. No? My dad crosses his arms at me. I made some. And you don't want any? I'm thinking, I say. Well, he says. Irritation in his voice. Think faster. When my dad uncrosses his arms, it means I'm taking too long to answer him. Six years ago, this would have meant something bad was about to happen because he didn't get his way. 
but he just balls his hands into fists. The scar in his left hand tightens and goes purple when he does this. Just seeing it turns my stomach. For the longest time, it meant the worst was coming. Purple meant I'd be bruised soon. He sees me looking at it and unclenches both fists before saying, I asked you a simple question. Fine, I say, so he'll stop bothering me. I'll have some. I watch him go through the spaces in the beams, over the tops of books and around them. I only see the black wave of his hair slide past Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird and circles hard times from my Great American Books class. When my dad enters the kitchen on the other side of the house, I lose track of him. But I hear him clinking, moving around, shaking plates and cutlery. Things have been bad between us for a long time. He's been different the past few days, though. He's actually been paying attention. Still, why is he making me breakfast? I figure he wants something. My dad has always taken being a member of the beat generation, literally. When I was younger, I thought for sure that I was in that generation too because I got beat all the time. Put it this way, on the days I was lucky, it was a belt strap. On the days I wasn't, it was the buckle. My back is pretty scarred now. A white ex-girlfriend once asked me if I'd ever gotten hit with a grenade. She wasn't entirely kidding. My dad has always been short-tempered, and I'm the only child. So that was how it went until I turned 13 and pulled a knife on him when he tried to hit me. That was the day it stopped for good. The weirdest thing was, though, instead of yelling at me, he smiled and told me he was proud to see me stand up for myself like that, and then he walked away like maybe I'd finally stopped disappointing him. That messed with me for a long time because it made me think back to every time he ever hit me, and I wondered how much of it was on purpose and not out of anger. It was worse to think of it that way, so now I just try not to. It wasn't the end of him being disappointed, though. Since then, he's just found other things about me not to be proud of. Like how on the first night of the riots, Carolyn and I did acid and went out and rode our choppers. He wasn't happy to hear we'd been looking for fires to stare at. There was no way to explain to him that it was worth it, that I saw birds and dragons rising from the flames and flying up into the air, thousands and thousands of them turning black and becoming the night sky. He almost took my bike away after I told him that, and I don't blame him. You can't bring an unconscious girl home without explaining every single step about how she got there, not to my dad. 2. I've got a Vespa bike, P125 model. We call them choppers because we chop them down. If I ever wreck one, it's easier to chop it than to get a new one. I kitted the engine on mine. I chopped down the cowlings, extended the forks. That took it from a 45 mile per hour max to over 90. You can hear its whine for miles. It's practically a road warrior bike. That's what I was riding when coming home from Kirwin's the next morning, and right as I was going up our street, I saw this twitchy guy chuck a flaming Molotov cocktail right through Momo's front doorway. I couldn't believe it. There's this kid, younger than me probably, dressed all in black, but he's got this white square of gauze on his hairline, held there by dried blood. Next to him was this van parked on the lawn. I cut my engine and coasted in when I saw him because I didn't know what he was going to do. For the longest time, he just stood there with the bottle burning in his hand. I thought for sure it was going to explode on him. It looked like he was talking to himself, whispering all the while not noticing how serious the situation was. And it must have gotten to the point where it burned his hand because he screamed and threw it as hard as he could through the front door. Right after, he turned to the van and looked at me like he wanted to do something about me sitting there on my chopper. But he took off instead. I went to the door after that because I wanted to see if there was anything in Momo's that could be salvaged quickly, 
But the second I looked in, I saw a girl lying face down on the living room floor, and any thought I had before that just evaporated. Next to her, a giant rippling triangle of orange fire climbed the wall like in the movies except louder and so hot. Just getting a few feet from it made all the hair on my right arm shrink down to little black nubs and all I could think to do was grab the girl's ankles and drag her out the door. Doing that, I scraped her chin and cheek pretty bad on the porch concrete before I got her onto the lawn and flipped over. She was bleeding and unconscious as I panicked and searched for a heartbeat. In my room, I hit stop on the specials. It's a good thing, I think, showers are overrated, because our water is off again. Something to do with the plumbing being worked on. I don't even question it anymore. I swipe some deodorant on, grab a blue Fred Perry, do the collar up, and put on some red bracers. After that, it's just bleach-stained jeans with a roll-up high enough that you can see every inch of my black docks. My dad sees me this way every morning and rolls his eyes. He's had it explained to him so many times, but he still doesn't know what a mod is, or why his Mexican-American son would ever want to be one. He doesn't get that culture is different from my generation, that we get to choose. It's not about whatever it was when he was my age. It's about cholo stuff now, gang stuff. It's selfish. He doesn't get that music saved me. The ska, two-tone stuff, Trojan records. It keeps me out of that world. Sometimes I think my old man would be happier if I was out banging, though, because maybe that's closer to how he grew up. Even though he never talks about it, even though he's got other scars that can't be from learning construction work even though he says they are. My mom gets me, though. She's happy I'm not involved. In fact, she's the reason I'm still living at home, even though I've been graduated from high school for a year. She's already at work by now. She got a call last night that the accounting office she works at would be opening back up today after being closed last week for the riots. So she left early, before I woke up because she was afraid of the reports she'd been seeing about snipers on the news. When she's gone, it's tougher for my dad and me to talk to each other without sounding like we're fighting. Three. My dad's sitting in the kitchen table when I get there, dousing his omelet and ketchup because he's the only Mexican on earth who doesn't eat it with salsa. He says he can eat it however he wants because he pays for it. As soon as I sit down across from him, I say, What do you need, Dad? What do you mean, what do I need? He waves his fork at me. I need to eat? Yeah. Why'd you make some for me, too? What's your motive? He scoffs and forks a bite into his mouth. Motive? You watch too much TV, mijo, using words like that. He's only being defensive because he knows I caught him. He does need something from me. All I have to do is wait it out. I look out the kitchen window at a half-tiled fountain in the backyard that my dad hasn't finished yet. It's shaped like a circular, three-tiered wedding cake with a moat around the base, and it looks like a place where broken rainbows go to die because the tile on it is green and red, blue and yellow, purple and white, all mixed together. My dad does his work order jobs with good stuff, but at home, he's cheap, so he tiles with the mashed ends of things from the shop. Orphans, my dad calls them. And then he says he has to find a home for them. It's his penance. Even though I've asked, he never has explained that. My dad stares at me like I'm an asshole for a good 30 seconds before he finally says, I need you to come with me to Compton and check on the Victorian. Bring one of your friends. There's no telling how safe it is out there. I think I can call Kerwin, and he's probably awake by now. But I also think if I do this, my dad can do something for me too. Okay, I say. But I want to go by the hospital and check on Cecilia, too. My dad sighs. 
She's bad news, that girl. You need to stay away from her. I just want to make sure she's okay, I say. I never planned on lying to Momo about Cecilia. It just happened. One moment I was in the house watching television about all that's been going on, and the next, Momo was on my lawn with a car full of cholos behind him. I didn't expect that, so I panicked and went outside. The next thing I know, I'm lying when he asks about her. I lied because it sounded like he meant to kill her if I told him where she was. The truth is, she never ran away. She inhaled smoke, but there was something else too. She was seriously glazed over. It wasn't pretty how coughing fits would break her moments of almost deathly stillness. I put her in the back of my mom's Honda and drove us to St. Francis Medical Center on MLK in Imperial. I filled the forms out as best I could for her, but all I really had was a first name from when I met her months ago and Momo's address. When she went beyond the admittance doors, I told her I'd check up on her, and I meant it. Right now, though, my dad is looking at me like I'm stupid enough to make a move on a drug dealer's girl. A girl I wouldn't make a move on even if I was attracted to her, which I'm not, because I told Momo she was okay and gone, not still here in Linwood and hooked up to a respirator. I'm in enough trouble as it is. Fine, my dad finally says. We're definitely related. He says it the exact same way I agreed to eating breakfast with him. Like it isn't fine, but he'll do it. He'll drive me to the hospital. We have a deal. 4. At noon, we head to the hospital. While we're on MLK, my dad asks if I want lunch. And when I tell him I'm not that hungry, he ignores me and pulls into Tom's Burgers and parks anyway. This is more like my dad, I think. Not much of a listener, always doing what he wants regardless. Tom's is right across from the hospital. I think he's doing it to prove a point. He didn't really want to come, so he's going to string it out. Inside is busy. We pass by the little arcade and up to the front to order. A little black kid is playing on an old centipede machine as two friends cheer him on. The other two video games stand unplayed. Tom's is a neighborhood place, known to be hood good, which means cheap, filling, and occasionally tasty. And seeing it full of families sitting down to a meal a couple sharing fries makes it seem like life is returning to normal, at least a little bit. There aren't any smiles passing back and forth between strangers, but I get the sense others feel the same way. Eyes aren't darting. People aren't hunched over food. They're all just trying to get on with their lives. We wait through a line that's eight deep, and it's smoky as hell from everybody in their cigarettes. The whole time we're standing there, I'm just wishing we were at Tam's on Long Beach instead. They have the Best chili cheese fries. I know Tams and Toms. It can get confusing, but not if you're from Linwood. Everybody I've ever met prefers Tams, but it's not close to the hospital, and this one is. Make sure you know what you want, my dad says. When we get up there, I'm ordering. Fine, I say, and another of the Rivera finds makes an appearance. My dad always knows what he wants, and when I don't, on anything, it drives him crazy. Sometimes I use this to my advantage. But on a day like today, when I'm not all that hungry and don't really want to be here anyway, I'm willing to oblige him as I scan the menu on the wall behind the register. I figure just a cheeseburger. That's safe. No Thousand Island, no onions. Jalapenos, though. I can put the ketchup on myself. They always sit that out at the condiment station. When it's our turn to order, I tell the counter girl what I want, and she writes it down. She says, that it for you? That's it, I tell her. That's not enough for you, my dad says. And I really don't need you telling me you're hungry later. Get him some fries, too. 
It's embarrassing. Of course, it'd be less embarrassing if the counter girl wasn't so damn cute, which she is. Her name tag says Jeanette. I'm about to apologize to her for my dad when a guy behind me taps my dad's shoulder. My dad shrugs him off, but he's already got a story going. Sir, I'd never be a problematic on purpose, but I'm hungry. I'm diabetic, and I haven't eaten right since this whole thing started. It sounds like he's reading a list. A guy named Terry upriver from me got lit on fire. He goes on like that. It might be true, or it might be a rap he pulls all the time but I doubt it somehow. I watched my dad size him up as a black dude who's had a bad couple days. He looks like a bum. He looks exhausted, slight-skinned black man. He couldn't be more than five foot four with his long black t-shirt and dirty shorts to cover his chopstick legs. He's leaning on a cane that has feathers tied to it. His hair's pulled back in a little braided ponytail that's fraying and limp on the end, but he does have a big scar down his nose in the shape of the letter C like someone tried to cut a nostril off and missed. His cheeks are dotted with faint freckles, and he looks stoned out of his gourd, pupils so wide they only show thin circles of blue irises on either side. My dad tells him to tell the counter girl what he wants, which is odd, because my dad never does that. The guy orders a bacon cheeseburger and fries with extra seasoning salt. This guy then tells me I got a real good man for a father, and asks what my name is, so I say Mikey. He asks my dad's and learns it's Miguel. He says his name is James. He says he's glad to meet us, and of course he is because my dad just bought him food. In fact, I can already see my dad tuning out as James thanks him again for the kindness. To my dad, he did his deed and he wants to be left alone. While this is going on, I watch Jeanette take the order down and make a handwritten note on the receipt for James' stuff as to go, which is good, because James is going on about Vietnam now, about being a vet and how unappreciated that is in this country, before switching to talking about the river. People are watching us as my dad pays. Until the change comes back, I stare at the mashed-up tile on the floor, one with a million different pebbles in it, all squashed flat. My dad would know what it's called. Listen, my dad finally cuts James off. I got you food, and they'll bring it out. So go sit by yourself. We got our own problems. We don't need to hear yours, too. It might sound cold, maybe, but that's the truth. Everybody's got problems. It's just how it is. Best to just shoot straight with people and let them know what you can or can't do. Well, darn, James says. No call to get rude on it. I don't know what gold darn means, but he sounds southern from all I can tell, not from around here. His speech has a lilt to it, a softness that doesn't fit with how messed up he looks. As I'm trying to figure him out, my dad takes my elbow, which I wriggle out of and glare at him. He looks at me, sighs, and makes his way to a corner table. I go to the condiment station and grab ketchup, a bottle of tapatillo, and some napkins. James follows me there. Tell me to sit by myself, James says. That's mixing messages right there. Our lady would never do that. She'd never say that. Oh, yes, sir. A male voice at a nearby table says behind me, Handle this shit. Five. A muscular girl a few inches taller than me gets up from where she's sitting with three guys and steps in between James and me. She's a real chola. I can tell by the way she angles a look at me. She's got light brown eyes, the color of brown beer bottle glass with light shining through. Excuse me, she says. Is this dude bothering you? 
No, I say, it's fine. Okay, then, she says to me. But she turns back around and gets in James' face. You better step out if you want to eat that food these nice people provided you with. They didn't have to do that. I wouldn't have. I edge away to the table where my dad is sitting, and I see James has a look in his eye now, a glint of crazy. Land of the free, James says to the girl. I'm a vet, Gordon. Yeah, we heard that the first time, she says. Thank you for your service. Now do everybody a favor and shut the fuck up. James' jaw drops at that, and he starts huffing as he pulls up the sleeve of his tracksuit jacket to reveal a form with two long scars down the length of it. A machete. James draws a finger down his forearm. I'm a vet called darn son of a bitch. Land of the free. I'm no expert, but I guess it could be a machete wound. I look to my dad to see if he thinks the same, but he's looking down, reading a chunk of the newspaper he brought with him from breakfast. Bradley lifts curfew tonight, the front page headline says, and beneath it, he won't speculate on departure of troops. Shit, Payasa says. That ain't nothing. I slide into the wooden booth, still staring at Payasa as she pulls up her shirt to show a cluster of scars along her side. That's not a scar, she says, pointing at James' arm. These are scars. It looks like a blind person tried to write Roman numerals on her, mostly I's, an X, and a V. It takes me a moment before I realize they must be old stab wounds. I count ten of them and I'm not done before she puts her shirt down. Land of the free, she says, but only if you pay your fucking share. She's about to clock him, I think. James must think that same thing too because he takes a step back. I already paid, he says, but he's whining now. He lost this contest somehow. In a way, I don't quite understand, but I know it's happened because he's different now, more hunched. I paid a blood share, that's what I paid. This is a black city. People were uncomfortable with the display before race got brought into it, but that comment just snaps the room in half. The dining room looks about 50-50, black and Hispanic, with the Samoan family thrown in. I see people taking sides in their heads, getting ready to react if something is about to go down. I watch my dad take the tapatio bottle off the table and turn it around in his fist like he'll use it if he has to. It's so calm, so quiet, that I almost missed it. He does it without taking his eyes off the front page of the sports section that says, Lakers refuse to be swept aside. Bayasa laughs. This doesn't diffuse the tension in the room. It makes it worse. No, she says. This ain't a black town. But maybe you should stick around. In ten years, there won't even be rib shops anymore. Just taco stands. James' eyes almost bug out of his head. He looks like he might explode. You know why, though? Because we fuck more than you, she says. We have more babies than you, and we stick around, too. We already won. It's just a matter of when. James opens his mouth, but the counter girl saves the whole situation by handing him his food in a bag. He stares at the girl, at Jeanette. She mouths the words, just go, to him. And he must decide that isn't a bad idea because when he does go, he backs out the door, looking at Bayasa. Yeah, this Trilla says with a look of self-satisfaction on her face. That's what I thought. Go back to eating your meals, everybody. You're safe now. Show's over. As she sits back down, 
My dad puts the tapatio bottle back on the table and slides the thin tin ashtray to him before going in his chest pocket and pulling out a pack of cloves. I give him a look to show him that I don't appreciate having to eat next to someone smoking, but he bats it right back at me with a look of his own. What? I put it down when we eat, he says. Across the street from our table is St. Francis Glass Tower stuck to a rectangular building topped with a little cross. Next to that is a strip mall done up with white siding that I know my dad would pronounce as terrible. At the end of the mall is a payday loan place with armed guards standing out front with rifles. Two doors down from that is a nail place, but it's closed. None of this is as interesting as Piazza. I turn my eyes to the girl, to the table she's at. She's faced away from me, rolling her muscular shoulders. Her hair is done in two tight braids on either side of her head. They look like pigtails, except fiercer. I've never really seen a female gangbanger before. Here and there, but not standing up like this, not as an enforcer. I watch her table for a moment, and it makes sense now why she's the one standing up. The three guys there are all hurt. It doesn't take much logic to figure out that they've just been to the hospital. One of them is in a wheelchair with a leg elevated. He has a sling around his arm, too. The skinny one next to him has a wrap around his head, and I notice he's staring hard at my dad's hand, at the scar, I guess. He's got dead eyes like my dad sometimes gets when he doesn't want anyone to know what he's thinking. But something's going on in there because this guy pushes his food away from himself and turns his whole body toward the window. I wonder why he'd do that. Lately, I've been trying to keep my eyes open for stories. And I decide there has to be a good one in how those four ended up at their table looking like that. I also decide I wouldn't want to meet who did that because they look about as tough as it comes. I'm going to a central community college for small business management because my dad wants me to. So I can help him with everything. But I really want to be a writer instead. So I sneak English classes whenever I can get them. My burger's overdone. The one in the wheelchair says. We should have done Tams. Don't worry about it. The biggest one says. His partially tattooed arm is in a fresh cast that doesn't have any signatures on it. If I could cook, you wouldn't have to eat it. But I can't. And Tom's is close. So Tom's it is. You're welcome. He sounds like my dad. A provider. More than a little put upon. My bad. The other one says. They don't say much after that. And it occurs to me they're pretty exhausted themselves. My dad and I finish up, but only after I make my stand by not eating the fries he ordered. He eats them, staring at me the whole time. When we leave, I feel eyes on us again, but I don't turn. As we're walking out into the parking lot, I see a bus parked on Norton. The side of it covered in graffiti, but I can't read it. Maybe an F and something. A P or a K, maybe. It looks like a K. I walk toward the bus and step over a little wall into the nearby bank's parking lot. From there, I see the back of the bus, and I can read what's there. Clear as day. It says, Ernie. In the bottom leg of the last E, it says, R-I-P. To my dad, I say, You see that? Sure, he says as he fumbles with his keys. I ask him what he thinks about it. I think he died, my dad says and shrugs. He gets in the car then, but I keep looking because it's there to be seen. Next to me, the truck starts up. I step back down. It occurs to me that you don't get something like that unless somebody cares, and unless something really sad happened to you. It's a tribute, and it's meant to be noticed. Not everybody who sees it will care, but at least when they put eyes on it, 
but we'll know he existed. I wonder what Ernie's story was, what he went through for his name to end up on the back of a bus like that. My dad honks the horn at me. Okay, fine, I'm coming, I say. You don't have to honk at me. My dad yells from the inside of the cab with his window up. You're the one who demanded to go to the hospital. He's right. Of course he's right. But if anything has changed in me since the riots began, it's that I'm noticing things now. I'm seeing, actually paying attention to my city again. Before I'd stopped seeing it, moving around L.A. was just something that happened in between the important stuff of eating or hanging out with friends. But now, after five days of it, with the National Guard coming in and the U.S. Marines coming in and making things safe again, moving around actually is the important stuff. I take one last look at Ernie, and I hope he had a good life. The best life he could have had, all things considered. And then that seems stupid to me. Because I never knew him. So I just get in the truck, and we go. Six. On the way to Cecilia's room, in acute care, in the elevator that smells of ammonia and donuts, I eavesdrop on two nurses talking about something that happened in the lobby outside St. Francis' emergency room on Friday night. These two gangsters walked in, waving guns around. The shorter of the two nurses says, Nobody knows why they did, but they did. And they both walked right up to a family of three that got burned in a house fire. Minor burns, you know, but still. And they were waiting for help, this family. Holding wet washcloths to their arms and necks when these gangsters went up and put guns in their faces. Even a little girl's. A concerned sound escapes the tall nurse then, and she says, How old was the little girl? She couldn't have been more than 11 or 12, the shorter nurse says. The odd thing was that these two gangbangers didn't seem to want anything. They weren't there to rob anybody. They didn't ask for wallets. Mainly they were just there to terrorize people, you know? To strut around like they were tough or something. I never known homeboys to just show up and do something like that for no reason. I bet they were looking for somebody and maybe they couldn't find him, the tall nurse sniffs. How long did it go on for? Twenty minutes, the shorter nurse says. And then four National Guardsmen showed up, aimed their rifles at them, and told them to get the hell out or there would be serious consequences. They said it like that too. Serious consequences. At this point, one of the nurse's pages goes off behind me with three shrill beeps. I don't know which one it belongs to because my dad and I got in the elevator last and are politely facing the doors, but I hear them both check. Duty calls, the taller one says, and exits on floor four when we get there. We're headed to floor six, and to my relief, the shorter one stays on. Excuse me for listening in, I say. But what happened after that, after the National Guardsman got there? She eyes me for a moment, as if trying to decide if I'm worthy of hearing the rest. She has black hair, blue eyes, and an upturned little nose like a ski jump. The gang members actually backed off, saying something like, Okay, man, whatever, it's no problem. We were just having some fun. I blurt, Wow, that's having some fun? She gives me a half shrug and tilts her head at me like she's trying to figure out if I'm sheltered or just naive because around here gangbangers do all kinds of things all the time, and why wouldn't they do something even crazier when there was nobody there to stop them? I'm neither, sheltered or naive, that is, but she wouldn't know that. She's just making me nervous with how pretty she is. I wonder if she knows that now. My dad does, 
I feel him smirking beside me. The silence is almost awkward now, but I wonder if there's more to the story than that. So that's it? They just left? Yup, she says. They left, but when they did, the whole room broke out clapping. Cool, I say. It's not the best response, but at least I said something. As we got off on floor six, I thank her for telling me how it ended, and she blinks her blue eyes at me and says, no problem, as the doors close. Thank you for joining us for these special editions of Harper Audio Presents. And if you like what you've heard, you can hear my interview with Ryan in days one through five at Harper Audio Presents. This is Ryan Gaddis, the author of All Involved. Thank you so much for listening, but this isn't the whole story. To learn more of these characters, please check out the unabridged versions in print, audio, and ebook formats. Thank you for listening. <laughs>